Okay. If you will take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews. Again, in the sixth chapter, we're going to press forward. New verses to read. How exciting. If you'll join me in standing as we read out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace and understanding. We pray, God, that you would help us to see the glory that is shown to us in this passage and shown to us in your interaction with us. And we pray, God, that you would help us to be found faithful, that everything we do and everything we are would reflect the glory of the risen Christ. Lord, that we would bask in the glory of what it is to see your promises for what they are, to rest in them, to trust in them, and to know that, God, we didn't deserve you even making them, let alone keeping them. So, Father, give us a heart that honors you above all other things. Give us a heart that honors you above our own petty desires and above our own petty perspective on a world. Give us a heart, God, that sees the glory of all that you are, so that we would indeed understand that there is none greater. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Power of promise is something that we have lost sight of in this age of selfish fulfillment. We've sacrificed something powerful and grand in losing sight of it. The fact that when someone promises and binds themselves to that promise, attaching their own reputation and character to that promise, that we're also bound to them by the strength of the promise as well. This giving and taking of oaths, of covenants, and promises is a statement about the power of hope, of faith, and the wonder that comes when promise becomes reality. We lose out on the revelation of character and the steady infusion of joy when promise visibly matures and ripens in preparation of fulfillment by not seeing these things. The time of waiting and the time of becoming is an incredibly wonderful agent of connection between the parties engaged in promise. And when we increase the magnitude of the promise and the obligation by being bound to it with an oath invoking God himself, He has also freely bound himself um, to us. He attaches his own nature and character to the promises that he makes so that we might know him and the power of his purpose. And in seeing what he is willing to do before he does it, we are given the opportunity to learn the awesome nature of this God to whom we are bound and to whom we owe all things. We... We treat with our word casually. We treat with our word with a blatant disregard for what we say we're going to do. We build excuses into the front end of everything that we say and everything that we are. It used to be that a man's word was his bond. That you would insult a man by inquiring if he would be willing to go to a lawyer and sign a document after you've shaken his hand and said yes. It's... It's a changed culture. It's a changed world. And I'm not arguing that we ought to automatically just start taking everybody at their word. What I want to understand together with you and think through with you is the impact that this refusal to see the power of promise 
has had on us in our ability to see God. Because it changes everything. If we don't understand that promises matter, then everything that God has promised itself, mentally, we sort of put into the same category with everything else. Promises become sketchy. They become weak. And if we're not a people who keep our word and keep our bond and make our oaths and maintain our oaths, then we communicate to the people watching us that God himself is not trustworthy because we are the visible representation of God to a lost and dying world. So it's remarkable to me that when God made a promise to Abram, which is what the writer of Hebrews is referencing, he looked around for something that he could use as a as a binding agent and say, well, I, you know, remember when we were little kids, you'd make a promise to somebody and they'd say, do you swear on your mother? Because, you know, mothers are sacred. Um, that, that was like the biggest swear you could make because we, we weren't allowed to swear on God because that was really bad. Um, <laughs> but God looked around and he didn't have a mother. He didn't have anybody bigger than him that he could swear by. So he, he sealed and bound his covenant by himself. By the nature of his own being, he said, my nature is my guarantee. My name is my covenant. I give to you the promise, and you can rely upon the promise because I am who I am. This reality not only gives us confidence in the promise, it gives us insight into who God is. Because... Ultimately, if we recognize that this was a bit of a a thing that had to be circumnavigated, it had to be decided, and I don't say that in such a sense that God didn't really know what to do. I'm I'm being very flippant in, in how I'm describing that to some degree. God never wondered. God never had a problem where he had to scratch his head and go, huh, how do I solve that? That's, that's not the point. The point is, is that we have to recognize that In the giving of himself as the binding agent of the promise, God was giving us insight into himself. He was giving insight to us to the fact that there is nothing greater. That God himself is the one who binds all things. So ultimately, he is the source of all things and he owes nothing of fealty or allegiance or obligation or obedience to anyone or anything, anywhere, at any time, ever, never has, never will. This means that nobody has the power to influence God. Nobody has the ability or the, or the right or the pressure to exert influence on God to make Him do something He doesn't want to do. Now, automatically, the theology of half the Christian world is suspect at this point. Because it is doctrine in the Catholic Church that God didn't really want to save, but He got kind of pressured into it. And Jesus didn't really want to do what He had to do, and He got pressured into it. And therefore, we can give thanks and gratitude to Mary because she's really the source of all things. How that works out in real life makes no sense to me whatsoever. But that's what's believed. Understand this. There is nobody who forces Jesus to do anything. Not God. God didn't force Jesus to come die. The covenant of eternity was founded before the world began. Before God ever said, let there be light, the covenant of salvation was already agreed upon between the persons of the Trinity. Before the angels were made, before the stars in the heavens were put together, while everything was still tohu vovohu, dark and void, the covenant of salvation for the redeemed people chosen by God was set in place between the persons of the Trinity. God the Father agreed, I am going to choose a people for myself. I'm going to choose them and they will need to be redeemed. And Jesus the Son agreed, I will come and die and redeem them. I will shed my blood and give my life to pay for their transgressions. 
Now somebody who's following what I'm saying is thinking to themselves, nothing has been done yet. How are there transgressions that need to be paid for? It speaks to us of the intent and the purpose of the Father before He ever made anything. We were created to fall, that we might be presented redeemed. That Christ would receive the fullness of the glory. That Christ would receive the magnitude of everything that is, so that we might know the fullness of His love for us. So that we would have given the privilege of knowing God as He truly is. The Spirit's part in this bargain was to call effectually those who God has chosen and to draw them to see the Son, to give life unto them, to seal them, to enter into them, to hold them so that they will ultimately remain steadfastly belonging to Christ until the day of redemption. This covenant of eternity was set in place before anything was done. Nobody forced them to do anything. And the promises of God, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, are yes and amen in Christ. All of them. Every single promise that God has ever made finds its answer and its completion in the person of Jesus Christ. So when God told Abram, I'm going to bless you, what was the core of that promise? It was Jesus. Yes, there was a promise of an heir. Yes, there was a promise of nations coming out of Abram who was old and couldn't have children. Yes, there was the promise of God securing for them a land that would be their home and they would no longer wander. Yes, there were many other promises that were wrapped up in that. But understand this simple truth. All of the promises that God made to Abraham were about producing the place and the time and the circumstances where Jesus Christ would enter into humanity so that he would die for our sin. Every single promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Now, he owed that to no one. And no one forced him to it. Nobody caused him to do anything. God didn't make a world that was perfect and was supposed to be perfect forever, and then man broke it, and God had to go, oh no, now what do we do? That's contrary to Scripture. That's not only bad thinking, that's, that's heresy. That is contrary to what the Scripture says. Ephesians 1 says that you were chosen in the Beloved before the foundation of the world. So God didn't have to respond to man's sin. God planned it. God ordained it. God set it all in motion so that Christ would receive the glory as Redeemer which was his intention all along. He is the source of everything. And since he is the source of everything and owes nothing allegiance, it also follows that all things that come out of him owe him allegiance. You understand that? God made his promise to Abram by himself because there was nothing greater than him, because there was nothing to whom God owed his allegiance, to whom God would look and say, okay, I can make you this promise as long as my higher power lets me. You understand that dynamic? The Mormons believe that God is an elevated man, that he is a, a man who achieved some sort of divinity, and that there was a God who made him, and before that, that God became a man or became a God after being elevated. It's a long, crazy end. And finally you get to the end of all things and you say, who really started it? And they go, I don't know. That's not a God. That has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. So when they come knock at your door, just politely tell them, please no. That has nothing to do with truth. It has everything to do with man's invention because God as God terrifies us. And he should. So there was nobody that God had to ask permission from. So if everything comes from him, it stands to reason that everything must ask his permission. Everything owes him allegiance. Everything owes him fealty. Everything owes him the obligation of saying to God, I will do nothing that you do not allow. And I will do nothing that you do not specifically tell me I am to do. 
I will obey you in everything that you say, regardless of how comfortable or uncomfortable it makes me. I will follow your word, and I will live according to your purpose and your promise and your power. I will have everything that I am be subject to you, God, and to nothing else. This is what we owe him. We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our fealty. We owe him our obedience. And in the end, since this is true, it also stands to us to understand that God is therefore the final arbiter of everything that is. In other words, if God is the source of all things, owes nobody anything, and we owe him everything, then he's the one who gets to decide what is and what is not true. He's the one who gets to decide what is and is not real. He is the one who gets to decide what is and is not your intention. You ever notice when somebody asks you your reasons for doing something that you shouldn't have done, your immediate response, because you're human, is to find a way to defend yourself and justify yourself and make it not your fault. That's just human nature. God knows your heart. Amen. He knows your intentions. He knows why you did what you did. And you're not going to fool him. He's the one who on the day of judgment is going to expose your hearts. And he's the one who on the day of judgment is going to lay all of those things bare. And there will be no opportunity for you to argue against him and no opportunity for you to have anything to say because he is the one who gets to decide what is and isn't. It was his rules, it was his world, it was his planet. It's his creation, his playground. He gets to decide what is. He gets to decide what isn't. He gets to decide what is the meaning of all things. And he gets to decide what is the purpose of all things. So all of the confusion that is rampant in our culture today about who I am and who I'm not and what I want to be and what I identify as and all of these silly things, they are an absolute affront to the God of the universe who made all things as they are. And this is something that the church should not be wishy-washy on. This is something that the church should be gracious about but clear about. We don't need to be ugly to people. We don't need to be mean to people. But we do need to be clear about what's real and what isn't. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Male and female created He them. Clear lines, clear distinctions, no other options. You're born a man, you're a man. You're born a woman, you're a woman. It's not hard to define. You're not a cat, you're not a dog, you're not a poodle, you're not an orangutan. You are a human, either male or female, according to what you were born. This is the truth of Scripture. And this is the truth of what God tells us is, and it's not because I say it, but because the one who had no one greater than himself to swear by says it. If God didn't need to ask permission from some higher power to make a promise to Abraham, then he doesn't need to listen to the squalling of somebody that he created about how they think that he's wrong in what he did. Does that make sense? You see, our unwillingness to speak the truth about these things is because in the end, we do not understand correctly who our God is. We spend more time trying to make Him like us than we spend trying to make us like Him. And the calling of becoming a Christian is to be conformed into the image of Christ. Your every thought, word, and deed should be aimed at conformity to who Christ is. But instead of doing that, we spend our days trying to make God like us. Somebody quipped at the beginning, God made man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. Beloved, our God is greater than our pretense. Our God is greater than our expectations. 
Our God is greater than our culture, greater than our nation, greater than anything anybody can do or say or ask or imagine. And he is far greater than this poor person has the ability to express. He is magnificence in every way. He is glory. He is power. He is beauty. He is truth. And in the end, his will is the only one that matters because he is always the judge who will determine what is just and what is right and what is and what is not the standard of what is just and what is right. There is no argument which can be leveled against God's decree. You can try, but it will fail. And it will fail because in the end, you do not have the power or the ability or the right to argue with him. It is his will and his choice, and those are the only ones that matters. It is his choice and his preference, and those are the only things that matters. It is his ideas. His will and his purpose defines everything that is. Now, somebody who's read their Bible is going to say to me, but there are places in the scripture where God is going to do something and his servants talk him out of it. So let's look at a couple of them and think about what's going on here. Genesis chapter 18. We're not going to read the whole account, but you can turn there and look at one verse with me. I'll give you the background. Abram has had a visitation from God. He's been given the promise of a son, the heir of all things. Uh, The heir of everything that Abram has will be coming to him, born from his wife Sarah. And in fact, she'll be pregnant and the baby will be there inside of a year. Sarah has laughed, then denied it. And um, God has sent his angels on to deal with the sin that is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, Abram is my chosen servant. I'm not going to hide this from him. So he tells Abram what's about to happen. And Abram begins to plead for the people of Sodom. And verse 25 in Genesis chapter 18 says, Far be it from you, this is Abraham talking to God, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. Genesis 18. Could I get the wrong scripture? Genesis 18, 25. Okay. (laughs) All right. No worries. So, throughout the course of the conversation that follows, Abraham started off saying, "Would, would, if there were 50 righteous men, would you still destroy the city? And this is where this comment comes in, is at the 50. And God says, no, I'll let it go for 50. What about 45? Would you, would you destroy the city for the lack of five extra souls? And God says, yeah, no, okay, 40, 40, 45 is good. 40, 30, 20, 10. In the end, the agreement stands that if there are 10 righteous souls, I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But we know what happened. We know that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because there was not 10 righteous souls. In fact, there were no righteous souls except Lot who the scripture tells us tortured his righteous soul by being among the wicked, which is a very confusing thing to me that I'm not going to address today. The question we need to address is, did Abraham talk God out of something that God intended to do? Not at all. First of all, God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Sodom and Gomorrah was ultimately destroyed. But more than that, what I want you to see is that God told Abraham what he was about so that Abraham would have the chance to learn something about his God. You see, Abraham started off arguing for God's nature. God, God, you're the judge of all the earth. Won't you do what's right? Won't you do what is good and what is true and and, and what is best? In this completely strange, completely beyond my comprehension matter, Won't you do what is right? You're you're the judge of all the earth. Can I not rest in the truth that you're going to do the right thing? And as, as Abraham wrestled this out with God, what's really happening here is not that God is having his mind changed, 
But that Abraham is learning that, yes, his God, the judge of all the earth, will do what's right. And although God hadn't determined and laid out the terms prior to his conversation with Abraham, at least so far as he told us, Abraham didn't invent something that somehow changed God's perspective or changed God's mind. Abraham learned that his God could be trusted to do what was right. Because Abraham, at the point of ten righteous souls for the sake of a city, looked at that and went, that's a fair deal. (laughs) So even in the sight of Abraham, it was a good exchange. And I want you to notice that God went above and beyond the deal that he made with Abraham. Abraham didn't ask him to deliver the ten righteous souls. Abraham didn't ask him to deliver the one righteous soul. Abraham didn't mention Lot. He didn't say, my nephew's there, can you get him out? I told him not to go there, but he didn't listen. He didn't do any of that. Who thought that up? God did. The judge of all the earth who will do what is right. And so often we look at these circumstances that are listed out in Scripture and and we, we think that we see something that's not really there. Somebody says, well, that's not the only time. I know Moses also argued with God. So let's look at that one too. Exodus chapter 32. It's one of the times that God told told Moses, I'm done with them. Get out of the way. I'm going to destroy them. So before we look at this, I want you to understand that Moses had been called by God to deliver the children of Abraham. And if God chose to destroy Israel and start over with Moses, which is what he said he was going to do, when he told Moses he was going to do, and he made a descent out of Moses, would they still be the descent of Abraham? Yes, because Moses was the descent of Abraham. Amen? His promise to Abraham would still be on the table, would still be fulfilled. So the promises that had been made are not really in question here. Does does God know this? Sure he does. Does Abram care at this point? No. Does Moses know this? Moses has to know this. But Moses has another issue in mind. Moses' concern is, is that if God destroys Israel and starts over, the nations that are around will say he did it because he couldn't finish what he started. So God's reputation is at stake. Now, it's a compelling argument. So we have to question whether or not Moses pressured God into doing something that God had not otherwise intended to do. So let's ask some questions of the text. Did God have an obligation to save Israel? As a people, he told them, I'm going to take you to the promised land. So he had already bound himself to that intention. The promise to Abraham, we've already decided, would have been satisfied even if God started over with Moses. Abraham would still have a nation of descent. But that's not the issue. The issue is God had made promises to these specific Israelites. I'm going to lead you to a land. I have established my covenant with you and with your descent. I am going to build of you a people, and I'm going to give you the land that I promised. I swore it to your fathers that I would, and the time to fulfill that promise is to you. I'm going to lead you to the promised land, and we're going to do this. So if God is to be trusted, we really need to wrestle out what's happening here. So the question is this. Well, let's just look. Moses speaking to God. Verse 30, chapter 32, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of this heaven 
And the land that I have spoken of, if I give it to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So where does Moses begin with his argument with God? With his promise, right? I think he begins in a really wise place. I think he begins at the only place that you can begin and say, look, you gave your word. You gave your promise. And yes, they have made a golden calf. And yes, while we were up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and I was there 40 days and 40 nights, my idiot brother made this calf and did this thing. And I don't understand anything that went on. But God, you've made a promise. And your reputation is at stake. Verse 13, we just read. I'm sorry, we'll back up a little bit. Verse 11 Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your face from your fierce wrath and relent from harm to this people. And then he reminds God, reminds God, if you will, of the promise that he had made. And verse 14 says, The Lord relented from the harm which he had sworn, which he said he would do to his people. Now it's important for us to understand that God is teaching his servants. In both cases, God is teaching his servants. God will never violate his own intentions, and he will never violate his own promises. He will never violate his own nature. He will never violate his own character. He will never violate anything that he has said he would do or anything that he will. He was teaching Moses to count God's character and promises as one and the same. So God's character and his reputation are in play here because if God destroys them, then the Egyptians and all the nations around are going to say he couldn't finish what he started. What a weak God he really turned out to be. Yes, he was mightier than Ra because he sucker punched him, but he couldn't finish the job that he began. But he didn't stop there. He went on to connect it to the, to the very promise that had started all of this. Because what we need to recognize is that the bedrock of every instance in which we speak to God is rooted and anchored in his promises that he has made. Why does it matter that we have cast ourselves upon Christ if God's promise cannot be trusted? Do you understand that? If you question the veracity of God's truthfulness, then Christ offers no real hope for you. If you cannot believe God, then there is no point in trusting Jesus. If you cannot rest in who God is, then all of your hope in Jesus is on very fragile ground at the very best. So God is teaching his servants. He's teaching Moses that God intends to do what he set out to do. And ultimately, Moses had a hard time dealing with his own feelings for his people. Moses didn't always like his brethren. (laughs) And who can blame him? His brethren were often unlikable. Moses often got himself in trouble because he felt like doing the job that he'd been called to do was a burden. In fact, ultimately, that's what got him kicked out of the promised land or kept from going in, was his statement that he had to do this thing again. He robbed the glory that came from God, and then in his anger, he struck the rock that he was told to speak to. See, Moses had his own issues here, and ultimately, God is teaching Moses that it is God's responsibility to carry them through. And I don't know that I can tell you with any truth that Moses had thought this through until that moment of crisis. See, sometimes we find ourselves thinking really clearly when we don't know where we're going, we don't know what we're doing, and we don't understand the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Sometimes those moments produce our very best thinking. And I think that this is the occasion that we see here. Moses had been leading the people and doing what he was told to do. He'd been caught up in the swell of being the deliverer and and being the one who, who got to fight with Pharaoh's armies and fight with Pharaoh's magicians and fight with Pharaoh's gods. And he, he got caught up in all of that. But 
the role that he had been called to do to lead the people involved loving the people as well. And I don't think he was very good at that. I think that Moses didn't really care for his people as much as he should have. They'd cost him dearly. Remember early on in his life when Moses was a mere young man of 40, he, um, he attempted to deliver Israel on his own strength. And he killed a man. And in the end, when he did this, his people wouldn't follow him and they turned on him. And it got him kicked out of Egypt. He was, he was 40 years in the desert, fleeing from what he had done. And when God called him to go back, he went, can't you find somebody else? I suddenly have this stuttering problem, which we never heard about before. Was it real? Not real? I don't know. God let it by. God let it go. Gave him Aaron. But ultimately, what we have to recognize is that every single time we come up against God being argued with and reasoned with and relenting, that God's ultimate purpose never changed. If you follow back and you, and you read the promises of God and you read the things that he said he was going to do, there's never any deviation. We find these little things where, where we can inject this momentary circumstance and we think to ourselves, well, God changed his mind here. But really all he did was put on a human face to teach his servants something they needed to know. It's called an anthropomorphism. And it's the idea that we give human characteristics to something that is not quite human. And although normally that is given for calling an inanimate object something that is more like a human than it is, God himself is not human, and it's important for us to remember that. He is not like us. We are made like him, but imperfectly, not completely. And even as redeemed people, we will not ever be exactly as God is. You will not one day progress to Godhood. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you. No, I'm not. I'm telling you the truth. You will not one day become a God. You will never be everything that God is. But you are the redeemed of God, adopted into the family, and made like unto Christ, so that he is the firstborn among many brethren. We give God human characteristics so that we have handles on which to grab with our understanding, so that we can somehow get a grasp of this God who is beyond us. And that's what we see throughout the Old Testament so often. God was reminding Moses that having been given the promise, God would stand by them forever. Now, I want to just inject something here for us to think about, and then we're going to move on. If God had decided in that moment to destroy Israel, would he have been right? Yes, he would have, because he is God. And whatever he does is right. Okay? You need to understand that, and you need to grab hold of that, and you need to plant that deep in your soul. Because God is God, and what he does is always right. Everything he does, everything he says, everything he is, is absolutely right. He is the defining characteristic. He is the very definition of what is right. God himself is the one who is always right and always true. And he is always the one who has the final say. Whatever he has decreed will happen, and whatever he has decreed will be best. Now, if you're like me, you've got a laundry list, as long as your arm, about all the things that you wish God had done different in your life. But I'm here to tell you the truth, that what God did is best, period. And you can take it up with him, and you can argue with him about it, but all you're going to do is make yourself miserable. Because what God did is best. And the sooner you come to grips with that, the happier you'll be. God is always the one who has the final say. He is always the one who has decided what will and will not happen, and he is always the one who gets to be the final arbiter. Look at Job chapter 38. We know the story of Job. We know that ultimately Job, wow, 
their words do not have enough to tell us everything that Job endured. But we get 37 chapters of everything that Job endured. And Job started off being a righteous man, the Scripture says, and he said, God has done this, and the Lord blessed, and the Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. And the Scripture goes on to affirm that in everything Job said, he did not sin with his lips. He said what was right. And some people are going to argue and point out that what God did was a mean trick and he didn't have any right to do what he did to Job. But at the outset of it, Job understood that God had the right to do what he did. And Job was right in that understanding. Now, given that Job endured quite a little bit for quite a little while, it's not hard to understand that at the end of it, Job may have transgressed with his lips a little bit. At the end, it's not hard for us to imagine that finally Job had just had a belly full of his bad counselors and his bad luck and his bad circumstances, and he began to question, God, why is it that you have done this? And in chapter 38, God remarkably, amazingly, terrifyingly deigns to give answer. Chapter 38, starting at verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You hear what he just said? You're speaking a lot of foolish words, Job. You're sounding like an idiot. Who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? Now, prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. (laughs) A little irony there. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors. When I said, this far you may come, but no further. And here, your proud waves. Must stop. Now, we, we can read on, but we're just going to stop there because sooner or later we're going to have to be done this morning. But do you, you catch the flavor of what God did? Did He give Job a good answer? <laughs> well, He answered him. He answered him well because He does all things right, but did He answer His question? No. And we can read the next four chapters of Job and realize that God never did answer the question. What God said is, Job, I'm God, and you're not. Deal with it. You don't have the right to question me. But I want you to notice that when God interacted with Job in this way, he was still mercifully teaching his servant who he was. Because Job had had a perspective on God that was not connected necessarily to truth. Job had had a perspective on God which said, if I do the right things and live the right way, then I can absolutely guarantee that I'm going to have health and wealth and prosperity. Sound familiar? Sounds like a lot of the garbage is being taught under Christian doctrine today. And God set about to correct that understanding. Job, you don't have any leverage on me. I owe you nothing. And everything that I give you, I give you because I am good. Whether you like it or don't like it, it comes from my hand. It is a mercy. Now, he gave Job a lot of really important things to understand. But at the heart of it, it boils down to this. Job is not qualified to judge God. And neither are you. Amen. You're not qualified to judge what God does or doesn't do. You're qualified to see it, to give praise for it, and to accept it as best, always. Because when God swore to Abraham, 
He swore by himself because there was no one greater than him to swear by. He established the ground of his supremacy clearly and plainly. There's nobody higher. There's nobody stronger. There's nobody bigger. There's nobody greater. There's nobody to whom I owe allegiance or I must seek permission. I am God. And to me, all things give their allegiance. Not the other way around. This is what God has taught us. And this is what God has shown us. And in the end, nobody can challenge him or demand an explanation. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar? King of the world. On the top of the mountain. Doing everything right. He had it all. And in the end, he gave credit only to himself. He was warned by God, you better cut it out or it's going to go badly for you. (laughs) And he didn't. And so God cast him down from his place of exaltation and he spent seven years as a madman eating grass like an ox, drinking the dew of the earth, sleeping out in the open. Instead of being the king of the world, he became a fool and a byword. And at the end of seven years, God restored his mind to himself. He restored him and gave him back not only his mind, but also gave him back everything that he had possessed before. He gave him the fullness that he had taken away. And in doing that, we have this statement from Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. So this is the the response of Nebuchadnezzar after God has restored his brain to him. He said, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All of the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar understood. God had the right to do whatever he did. He had the right to say whatever he said. He had the right to make whatever agreements or promises or oaths. Now, it's important for us to wrestle through quickly this idea of an oath. Because remember, at the beginning of of the sermon, we talked about how when we were in grade school and we make a promise to our friend and they say, you swear by your mother? What's the reason for that? Well, it's twofold. It's first of all so that they believe what you say. So that the person by whom you're, or to whom you're swearing believes and trusts that what you say you mean and what you're doing you're actually say, what you say you're going to do, you're actually going to do. But sometimes an oath can have the impact of causing us to do when we're about to stop doing. Right? If I gave my promise and I said, if I don't keep this promise, then, then this terrible thing is going to happen. And I really believe that. Then when I'm about to fail because I'm weak, I'm going to think about that promise that I made. And I'm going to go, oh, I don't want that to happen. And so it, it invigorates me to keep my word. It invigorates me to keep my promise. The second one does not ever apply to God. Doesn't. God never has to be challenged or prodded or invigorated to keep his promises. He always does what he set out to do because it is in his nature to do so. So why does God promise? He promises for us. The same reason why God engaged in the the play with Abraham and in the play with Moses. In the same reason why God allowed other times in the Old Testament for people to, to seemingly sway him from a path that he had determined to do. The same reason why Hezekiah got 15 more years of life. Because God was teaching them something about himself. He promises to us so that we might know him. 
He promises to us so that we might see his intention and see his power. It gives us the ability to rest in the certain knowledge that our God both can and will do everything he said he would do. And since it's necessary that some of God's work is not yet, because he has created a world which is time-constrained, and we don't exist in all places at once and all times at once, we experience the world in a linear fashion, this moment is the only one we have. And so the promises of God for us are still future to us, but they are as real and true as if they had already taken place. Because God's word is to be trusted regardless. So he makes those promises so that we get through the now. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27, he says this, The Lord of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? What's the implied answer to this? Nobody. God makes his, perm- he makes his promise and he tells us his purpose. And he does it knowing full well that what he says he's going to do. But there's another part in this which is really amazing and really spectacular. And that is that God not only tells us what is coming and has not only made the potential for it to be there, but he is absolutely guaranteed that what he has promised is already as certain as if it were done. He has fulfilled everything that he ever said he would do because 2 Corinthians chapter 1, every promise of God in Jesus Christ is yes and amen. And it's yes and amen to the glory of God the Father through him. Everything that God has done is already secured. It's already done. It's already finished. It's already as if it were in our hands. His promise is as good as the substance of it. And we need to know that. And part of how we know that is that God reveals to us what he's doing. Ephesians 1.9 says, Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. God, who has already done the unthinkable by determining to save us, now makes us aware of the fact and ties himself to the accomplishment of what he set out to do. He purposed in himself to save a people. But he makes it known to us that he's actually going to do this. He makes it known to us by means of promises. He makes it known to us so that we can trust him and rest in the fullness of what he has said he is going to do. And he does this in such a manner that everything he has set out to do is already done. Now, we've lost much of our understanding and appreciation of the power of promises in this nation. People's words mean nothing. And it's not just our business dealings. it's, It's encroaching constantly. The culture of wokeness has tied being punctual to being a white supremacist. The simple courtesy about being on time and being where you say you're going to be is considered to be white supremacy now. Expecting you to keep your word and by paying your debt is misogynistic and aids to the patriarchy. So we ought to forgive all those debts. You guys spent the money, but you shouldn't have to pay it back. See, we don't expect people to keep their word. We've become a culture where we don't expect it and therefore the power of promise becomes to us weakened if it's honored at all. Men abandon their vows. They abandon their families. Wives run off. Marriages are dissolved and destroyed. Elected officials take oaths to defend the Constitution so that they can dismantle it completely. Treachery and treason has become the law of the land. And we expect this. Beloved, hear me. It has damaged our ability to rest in our God. And we need to repent of this. 
And we need to return to a place where we rest with confidence and comfort in the God who is, because he has told us what he is and what he's going to do. How the world treats should not affect us. How the world treats should not change our perspective of God. And yet subtly, we have allowed it to do so. We need to be very careful about believing God's promises and taking him at his word, regardless of what it looks like. We need to trust him. We need to rest in this. We need to wrestle this out. And we need to become a people who honor our own words and honor our own promises. Because in the end, if we will not honor our promises, then we become a people like the people among whom we live. We become like them. And when we don't take God at his word, we're establishing the ground by which we become like them. We need to understand this. And we need to wrestle this out because for us to doubt the promises of God is to doubt his very character. It's to doubt his very nature. It's to doubt everything about him. And it undoes the ground of our salvation for us. It undoes it completely in our own minds. We, we, we are then filled with fear. We're filled with terror. We're filled with dismay. When in truth, we should be filled with hope and joy and purpose and power. We should be filled with a constant knowledge that our God is doing everything that he said he was going to do. Because in the end... God's reputation is connected to his character. His character is defined by his nature. So the Ten Commandments are not just arbitrary laws that are pulled out of a hat. They are reflections of God himself. They are reflections of his own character, his own nature, his own purpose, his own person. Every single one of the Ten Commandments matters because they are the things that God himself says, these things matter to me. And, and the whole culture of the church today says, no, 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 we're not under law, we're under grace, so I don't have to pay attention to any of that. But nothing could be further from the truth. You are under grace and have been bought by the king. You have been purchased by his blood. Therefore, you must pay attention to what he loves. You must pay attention to what he honors. And I think the breakdown in our minds about this comes from the fact that we don't connect the law of God to the character of God. We don't connect the fact that God gave us those Ten Commandments because they are things that reflect His very character. They are things that reflect His very nature. Ultimately, the law and its consequence is completely consistent with who God actually is. Now this matters because our salvation is rooted in the fact that God has to do something about the law which condemns us. And it would be inconsistent with his character for him to simply disregard the law and say, oh, it doesn't matter, guys. Come on in. Everybody's saved. It's all right. It would be inconsistent with his character to not deal with our sin, which is why Christ came. And Christ came and actually paid for sin, which is why it's important for us to understand that the death of Christ is applicable to the people that God had chosen because if all Christ did was make it possible for somebody to be saved, then nobody is. It's his work that fulfills the work. It's his blood that buys a people. This is all connected to the promise of God being exactly what he says it is. Wrath and love are consistent and necessary twins of the same truth. God is a good God who created a world which runs according to his law. It doesn't mean that there are not people in rebellion, but it means that the world functions the way that God intended it to function. And if you will set yourself to obey his law, your life will generally be better. Because the world works the way God intends it to work. He has built it and fashioned it so that it will do what he set out to do. The world that God created it, and it functions as this is the best of all possible worlds. Now, I understand that 
we believe that things are broken and that we want to fight for things to be better. Okay? So how do you resolve those two statements? That this is the best of all possible worlds, there's nothing better, and yet we still recognize there's room for improvement. I recognize it like this. At this moment, everything in all of God's creation is exactly as he intends it to be at this moment. Amen. It means there are no accidents. There are no happenstances. There is no such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as random chance. There is only the will of God. And that means also then, if that's true, and I can support it with Scripture, if that's true, then this moment matters. And if God had done things in any other way, this moment would not be. This moment that God has brought you to this place matters. And there's something here that you need to understand. There's something here that you need to wrestle out. There's something here that you need to let sink deep into your soul so that it transforms your perspective of God. Everything that is, is exactly doing what God determined it to do. There is not one rogue Adam in all of creation. Not one. And I say this because God is exactly who he says he is. His nature and his character are defended and displayed in the manner that he fulfills his stated will. This is why the promise of wrath actually matters. There will be wrath poured out upon those who disregard his law. Keep in mind, nobody goes to hell for rejecting Jesus. People go to hell for sin. If a man falls overboard on an ocean liner, somebody throws him a life preserver, and he doesn't grab the life preserver, what goes on the death certificate? Miss the life preserver? Drowning. It's a simple analogy, but it shows us the truth of it. We go to hell because we sin. And we sin because we love it. So what God is doing in all of this is changing our love. He's changing our desire. He's changing our perspective. He's teaching us, just as he taught Moses, just as he taught Abraham. He's teaching us. He's teaching us to trust him. He's teaching us to rest in him. He's teaching us to believe him, to take him at his word. He's teaching us that he is a God who can be trusted no matter what. It it boggles the mind that the God of the universe would deign to save anyone. It boggles the mind that the God of the universe would deign to even offer salvation, even if all he did was offer. If the only thing he did was say, okay, keep these rules and you'll be okay, you can get in. That alone is is mind-boggling. But he doesn't stop at the offer. He fulfilled everything that was needful and he guarantees salvation to the people that he has chosen for himself and he delivers it to them by every means necessary. And beloved, there is nothing greater than what God has done in Christ. The cost is beyond your imagination. We, we read this morning the, the account of the crucifixion of Christ in Mark. It doesn't come close to what really happened. Mark is the briefest of all of the accounts. They crucified him. It was dark. He cried out, Lama, Lama, Sabachthani. Eloi, Sabachthani, right? What's going on there? What's going on there in that moment is that Jesus Christ is enduring the portion of the God's wrath For your sin. He is enduring your portion of hell. And paying the just penalty for your rebellion against God. 
so that God's nature and character are inviolate in saving a people. There is nobody who will be able to say that God did anything wrong because he chose to save you. Because he paid the price. And he did everything that was needful. And Christ endured that to redeem his people. Beloved, over everything that we do and everything that we are, this truth stands supreme. Our God has accomplished his purpose. And he has fulfilled every promise he ever made and will fulfill every promise that still remains unseen. We are who we are because God is who God is. Amen. And if you're not clear about that, then it's going to have catastrophic results in your faith and in your life. It all comes back to the very basic truth that the writer of Hebrews puts like this. Because he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. It's the foundation of everything that we are and everything that we believe. Because there is no one greater than God. And in case you missed it, that includes you. You have no power to do one thing that God does not intend. Bask in that. Delight in that. And set yourself to actively, purposefully, intentionally live out your life in accordance to His revealed will so that you might delight in Him all the more. Bring glory to the Christ who bought you. Let His life be that to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day. We pray that you help us understand, that you help us flesh this out. God, help us walk in such a way that everything we do and everything we are reflects the glory of Christ. Show us how that is. And let us be faithful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.